founder of Periveritas Studios, which is uh, initiating a series of podcasts. This is one of our premier signature podcasts. It's called Sunshine and Brain. The host is Josh Burrows, who is uh, on the other line because we can't be in a studio because there's a disease out there in the world. This is the perfect time for us to, I think, really enhance our friendship. You know what I mean? To take what we built upon and uh, and grow it to a new place where we're just not going to see each other until June, basically. <laughs> I think that's the that's the way to do it. So, uh, so yeah, I'm I'm uh, I am indeed Josh Burrows, as Eric said. Um, we know each other because our daughters go to the same school. Um, and, uh, one of the things we have in common is that I guess, uh, we officially count as early adapter podcast listeners. And, um, I've been listening to podcasts since 2012 and have always thought about doing one, but never had any kind of motivation in terms of what to talk about it, aside from being goofy with someone else who likes to be goofy. Um, and, uh, but, uh, since then, I've had life experiences that um, I think uh, have given me something to talk about, or at least given me something that I'm passionate enough to talk about for an, a period of time that I can't measure in terms of how how long and how many years I could talk about this topic, and that's specifically the experience of mental health. And not, not in terms of, um, hey, this is a thing that I had, and I want to tell you how to deal with it because I think there's plenty of podcasts out there where you can get that information. But instead, what I find is someone who has struggled with mental health issues, um, that it remains uh, just one of a handful of, I think, stigmas that exist in our society that uh, are, are pretty significantly a challenge for those of us who deal with it. And so the purpose and goal of this podcast is to um, talk about our stories in a way that is as irreverent as we want it to be, um, as open and honest as we want it to be, but also um, not in the mindset towards self-help, but in a mindset towards telling our stories in as openly and plainly a way as possible. You know, like this is how we would talk about a mental illness around a water cooler at an office if it was allowed. In the same way that someone can be like, um, hey, I, I have to get knee surgery because I fucked it up playing tennis. It's like, hey, I have to go to the therapist because I fucked it up. My, I fucked up my brain <laughs> listening to my dad. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's the same fucking thing, but we don't talk about it that way. Um, and that's what I want to deal with in this podcast. So, it's interesting. I, you know, I sprained my brain thinking I knew more than everyone <laughs> over so many years. That's a very good way of describing what we're targeting or what you're targeting. This is your podcast. This is your your uh, car to drive. And uh, Josh, it is worth noting, has a history as a counselor of sorts, having mm -hmm. been um, clothed in rabbinical attire <laughs> for a decade and a half, no longer... No longer the rabbi job. No, 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 no. Yeah, I left that for reasons that will come up during this discussion. <laughs> <laughs> so what what made you think, what made you want to do this? Well, it's, uh, it's really, you know, based off of my personal experience from both sides of the coin. Um, you know, when I was a rabbi, I certainly worked with uh, plenty of people who dealt with their mental illnesses and saw the struggles that they had in terms of, um, just really how, you know, what does society do with people who've got a really severe mental illness? We put, we put you away. Um, and 
it never helps actually. It never, ever, ever helps. Um, as maybe it, sometimes it does for some people, but in my experience, it really doesn't. Um, and, uh, you know, and I think a part of the reason why we do that is because it's so goddamn uncomfortable. Um, and no, no one really feels like they can, I, I know for me, it's, it's something that I wish I could talk about more. And I do, you know, I try to bring it up and, in, in places and times that are, you know, I guess relevant, but, uh, but it's still, it's not comfortable. Um, and you know, in as much as this podcast can, maybe open up a different way of talking about this stuff in a way that maybe makes it a little bit more comfortable, then I think it would do the world a lot of good. And to be honest, I think it makes sense for it to be uncomfortable in a way because it's so frightening, but in a way it doesn't. I mean, so depression is what I dealt, is what I deal with. And uh, um, also anxiety as well. Those two things often go hand in hand. And depression specifically is like one of the oldest sicknesses known to man. Like fucking Hippocrates discovered depression same time he discovered the common cold you know what i mean <laughs> like that's we've known about this shit for a while and yet um you still have to whisper about it and you can't talk about it and um you know it's just not one of those things where it's obvious in terms of i don't know yeah you're in a place when you need help you know most people it's like we just got to get up you just got to go and uh it becomes a it becomes a challenge so my thought with this podcast was that we would begin it in a way that was sort of carved out for each person in the way they tell their story. So I think it's a really interesting question to just turn and ask a person like, all right, you've dealt with a thing. Just generally speaking, where does your story begin? Like, how did this happen? You know? And I think for a lot of people, they would back it up to a different spot. I mean, in a lot of ways you could go back to the big bang, right? I mean, <laughs> how far back can you go in like leading to um, dealing with uh, this thing? But I think for everybody it's different. So like for me, it stems back to a particular relationship that I had with my father and my grandfather. It's two, two men in my life that uh, had a big impact on me and were really different from me um, and different from each other in some incredibly important ways. But that, that would be the starting point for where my story would begin. I wonder if I asked you that same question, like, you know, with the various things that you've dealt with, like, where does your story for that begin? Um, you know, what would you say? Well, I don't think I've ever been as um, rigorous in discerning that as as you have. I think you've been much more committed to um, seeking the origin story of yourself, whereas I, frankly, uh, tend to bask in the the glory the glory of misery <laughs> <laughs> and to occasionally point fingers. Um, uh, you know, often at the dead, like, oh, yeah. you know, you know, my dad did that to me. Uh, I remember the time that my mom did that. I remember that, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, so I, I, I don't think I've, I've taken a real clinical approach to it. I very much any so-called treatment that I've ever yeah. looked at <clears throat> for anything that may be, uh, bothering me, whether mm -hmm. diagnosed or undiagnosed has been through, um, external means uh i know what do you mean well let me give you an example um when when i was about 11 years old i uh i got like a uh a, a, i don't know if it was a walkman tape player but it was you know one of those tape players you could put your headphones yeah. in yeah i mean this was 1983 
or something. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, I got the same thing. I got you too, Joshua Tree. It was fucking great. The first time I ever had like my entire head surrounded by music. Right. Yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's mind-blowing. And now yeah. we, we just take it all for granted because that's the way we just listen to everything. Yeah. You, know, you yeah. and I both have you know headphones on right now. We have cans. We're talking yeah. through the internet doing yep. it. But yep. what I got was I, I had a, a, uh, a set of parents that was not getting along. And I was um, the third of three kids. And at a certain point, all of us just kind of, all the kids, we just kind of had to find our own way. It's not to say my parents weren't parenting, but they were much more obsessed with dealing with the trouble that they had, which was a dysfunctional relationship, an alcoholic father, et cetera. And what I happened to fall upon was just a little extra money that allowed me to go out and buy comedy. And when I say comedy, I mean, George Carlin, I mean, um, uh, Richard Pryor. I mean, the stuff that an 11 year old at that time probably wasn't, there were no ratings there. You know, Tipper Gore had yet to actually jump into the scene and tell us all which we should and shouldn't allow our kids to listen to. It was Sam. I think Sam Kennison came in a couple years later, but it was along those lines. Those guys and were your therapists. <laughs> Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy oh was his first up. They were my therapists. And what they did was they, they, because their way of looking at things was a breaking down of the structures. It was a breaking down of those yep. things that I had been yeah. told to rely on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, George Carlin's discussion of um, religion, his discussion of Father Rivera and Father Rivera's <laughs> way of taking confessions. Like, you know, you go in, you're like, I was impure in impureness, talking about all these bad things that you've done. And then Father Rivera's like, that's okay, man. Trace de Maria. <laughs> you, know, like, <laughs> you know, and it's like, oh. It's going to be fine. It's, it, oh my God. Like, it's not so serious. And, and it, it, it was helpful in that it allowed me to see, like, oh, there are other ways of thinking. But at the same time, you know, like, not being able to fully understand how to navigate those things. So those were my first therapists. I mean, I think everyone has had therapists. I'm a lawyer now, and, like, lawyers are so hesitant to talk about anything having to do with their brain because it gives an implication that, oh, maybe you just can't handle this big case. Maybe you can't handle the arduousness of this job. And and there are competency questions in every state bar. You have to be able to prove that you're able to handle a caseload, that you can competently perform and depression, anxiety. There's no room for it. Yeah. And it's, it's stigmatized and there are, uh, there's sort of what I would call a form of like an AA within every state bar. It's usually called something like lawyer support group. And oftentimes it does deal with lawyers who are addicted to things, but a lot, really what it's targeting is like your mental health. And it's a big deal in the community for those that are willing to admit to it, because if you you look at how people practice this gig, right? It, a lot of divorces, a lot of unhappiness, Mm -hmm. and it's a stressful job. A lot of assholes. That's kind of the nature of the business. Um, and, and so, you know, you have to be able to be equipped with it. So anytime I've ever looked for some sort of, you know, uh, what would we call it? Very definitive therapy. Um, it, it, I end up actually, uh, 
performing therapy on the on the therapist. <laughs> oh <Later>. no! <laughs> you know, as, as Michael Scott says in in the office, "Oh, how the turntables." Yes. You know, yeah. 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 Get through. So, a few. You, so you basically took you you basically took an approach where you were like, "All right, so." I have understood now how to break the fourth wall of all of existence. <laughs> See past that none of this shit is real. It's all in everyone's head. And so therefore too is like whatever pain I might feel and also uh, whatever chaos might be in my environment and everything else. And, uh, and you know, but then it like, it kind of works for you. You know what I mean? You put everything in its spot and you're able to, you know, sort of keep it all together that way. It's pretty brilliant. Well, to the extent that it, it, to the extent that it can, I mean, like, I don't think I would say none of this is real, but so much of it can be controlled with just perception. So much of yeah. it can be controlled with yeah. uh, the ability to, as you say, put it in its place yeah. and to prioritize it. I mean, I, I work with people who have their livelihoods, you know, at my fingertips, and I, I take that very seriously because their ability to raise kids to eat to have businesses to you know survive that's a big deal and so i want to take that seriously and i do take that seriously yeah. but generally speaking there's a whole array of things in this chaos that is life that i think people m maybe aren't able to navigate and a lot of it comes down in my opinion you tell me josh you're a much more versed guy in this it comes down to people really wanting to impose order on a world that is inherently disordered yeah and that challenge is very hard and the outcome is usually very disappointing yeah yes absolutely and by the way i think that that's absolutely why people are so uncomfortable talking about mental illness in particular because we don't want to think of the brain as just another fucking body part that like needs to be taken care of in the same way that your knees do you know, um, because if if one thing goes off of balance, suddenly it's who are we now um, and how unbelievably, unbelievably frightening is it that, you know, um, that one thing might change. And then we just have we just we're now a totally different person. And so we just don't talk about it. We pretend like the brain is, you know, always in balance and uh, there's nothing to see here and we're totally fine and everything else. And so that's absolutely where that where that stems from. Um, you know, I think my story is very similar to yours in that I, too, took the outside perspective, you know, I mean, I remember the second I got glasses when I was like nine years old, um, feeling like, you know, this feels right. Um, I just have this frame in front of my vision that like puts a wall between me and everything. And, and I'm witnessing the world through that perspective, if that makes sense to you. Um, does that make sense to you by the way? Or is that complete nonsense? No, no, it, it does. It does. And it's interesting <laughs> you say that because as, as a nerd, who, <laughs> also got glasses mm -hmm. when I, uh, that would have been fourth grade, right? Like nine. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was around that time. Uh, yeah. In fact, it was that time. And I remember getting them and two things happened. One, I was so enamored with like the ability to see somewhat <laughs> clearly just the, the world that I was running on the basketball court at my elementary school <laughs> and I, I was running and I, it, this is rural New Mexico. This is the, the reservation. Um, and there were rocks on the concrete basketball court. And I was like, uh, oh, look, 
Uh, crack, crack rocks or just regular rocks? <laughs> just right, just okay. regular rocks. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if this was pre-crack or... Uh, <laughs> but there were rocks on... like a big. There was a big rock, like uh-huh. sort of the size of my hand. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, look, a rock. And I just kept running. And then I just plumb stepped on it. <laughs> and it slid. And I just busted my ass like right there like and it, it kind of like and i think about that all like, i saw that thing i saw that damn thing right uh, in my way and then i stepped on it and busted my ass i had clear vision and i still did that what a <laughs> dumb here's, here's what i did this is my version of that do you remember the rapper uh shinehead <laughs> no <laughs> i don't I don't. So, I'm sure that somebody does, but I don't. I look at Shinehead, you have to look him up. So Shinehead was a Jamaican rapper who got pretty popular in uh, the mid '80s um, when hip hop was, you know, when you had like Yo MTV raps was like getting started, and hip hop was becoming a big deal. And I'm a <clears throat> I'm a Jewish kid growing up in, uh, in, you know, the suburbs of New York City. And of course, therefore, like rap and hip hop is what it's all about, because we have the Beastie Boys, and we have to just do what we do. And uh, Shinehead was one of my favorites. He did that song, uh, uh, Don't Give Me No Marijuana, Don't Give Me No Marijuana, Don't Give Me No Marijuana, Crack, Crack. And he was, I can't, I can't do it without sounding like a racist. So I'm not going to do it. Because I'm just as like, fucking gangly and Jewish and awkward as you could possibly get. But he's well, it says. It, it says that the name of that track was mm-hmm. "Give Me No Crack." Give me no crack, but but the but the main verse he said, "Don't give me." He said, "Give me no marijuana" three times, and then he went straight to crack. So uh, that was uh, that was what life was like back in the eighties for people who didn't know what marijuana was. But uh, um, <laughs> but yeah, so I got his glasses, uh, which were these just big square glasses, and as soon as I put them on, I was like, clearly, I am Shinehead now. And uh, I tried to walk like him, you know, <laughs> I was like ready to be Shinehead. Uh, that, that was probably my mistake. <laughs> right. But, but then the second part of that is because you were also dork, you kind of saw that there was, there was this physical presence yeah. that, that distinguished you or at least separated you. And I often thought like if I took the glasses off, then I was seeing the world with real eyes. Whereas if I put them on, I saw them through fake eyes, but the fake eyes were at least focused. Yeah. 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 That's a hundred percent where it was, uh, it was that for me. Um, except for me, it was like, now I see the world as it is, which is just a veneer for something else. And that allowed me to be outside of, you know, the chaos that was sort of in my environment that kind of set me up, uh, or at least was part one of what sort of set me up for what then became, you know, a pretty uh, challenging experience with mental illness. So for me, like I said, the beginning of my story is in the lives of two different men, one being my father and one being my grandfather, both being the most significant male role models in my life. And my father was um, a really good dad um, in that he was a much better dad than his dad, if that makes sense. Um, There were a lot of things that he couldn't do um, certain amounts of affection that he wasn't able to show, et cetera. I know he felt it, but he wasn't able to show it in a way that might've been better for me, I guess. Um, and, uh, um, and he, but he made a lot of personal sacrifices in order to be like that. And a part of that was he struggled mightily professionally his entire life. And on the other side of my shoulder is my grandfather, who was sort of the opposite of that. On one hand, he was incredibly successful professionally, 
On the other hand, he was also pretty unsuccessful as a father and really worked to make that up with his relationship with me, but put on me a, a certain mindset of, you know, I've gone through certain sacrifices to be able to create a life for you. And by the quality of the life that you live, I'll know that my sacrifices were worth it. And then my dad's side was the very same message. I've gone through certain sacrifices in order to create an opportunity for you. And hopefully the quality of your life will, will be a reflection of the sacrifices that I made. And I took those in personally and designed as a, as a teenager and probably a, a little bit younger, a life that would somehow fulfill that kind of uh, that purpose. The problem was, was that that wasn't my life at all. Um, and so like, it was really from there that created this narrative arc that was ultimately going to lead to where it led to. Um, and so for me, like, that's really sort of where the story of my mental illness uh, kind of comes from. Um, I wonder if any of that resonates with you. Well, let me ask this question. What did your hmm. grandfather do? Like what you said, he was incredibly successful. What was the nature of his success? So the family business, um, which he came into after marrying my grandmother, um, was uh, tools. Um, we, were, uh, we were tool manufacturers and distributors and a pretty successful mid-sized company that did that. The company was called Oxwall and Steelcraft, the sort of two companies together. We were one of the first companies in America that actually outsourced manufacturing. And so early on, we had built um, you know, uh, factories in India and Japan and also China. Um, and we would build, you know, we, we, I mean, it's just, you could just imagine like the, the like character from the New York Jew from like the, you know, 1950s or whatever, you know, talking about, uh, you know, we'll go over to Asia, we'll build it for cheap. We'll come over here, we'll sell it for more, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's like sort of where it's at. And uh, yeah, they got that shit done. And he actually uh, sold the company, bought it back and sold it again. And he sold the company to a company then, I think that was called Homemaker, and now it's called Sarah Lee, and, uh, and made quite a bit of money that way. And then alternatively, he also became a very significant leader in the Jewish community um, uh, through a, a really interesting art project that he and my grandmother sponsored. And then he became involved in the sort of senior leadership on the lay side, the lady side. So not rabbis, but like business leaders, et cetera, who, um, can you still hear me by the way? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Cause my, my computer just, the screen just shut off. I let it, um, shut off there and I wasn't sure if it still worked, but it's still working. Cool. We can keep that body. You don't have to edit that. I think that's cool. That, that might still be in there. <laughs> All right. All right. Anyway. So, uh, so yeah, he became a, he eventually became the chairman of the board for the Reform uh, Jewish Movement, which mean he was which meant he was the boss of everybody, um, and uh, so very prominent. Like when he died, you know, five of the major leaders of the Reform Movement spoke at his funeral. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it was like to capacity, and um, and my dad died shortly after him, and uh, it was a very different. It was much more like these are dearest friends and family. Um, and, uh, that sort of thing. But yeah, my, my grandfather's funeral, my, who I call my poppy, my poppy's funeral was a big deal. So that's just the kind of man he was. He was very socially and very, you know, professionally successful. What expectations did you see? You seem to have, well, let, let me back up. You seem to have, uh, 
seen your grandfather as having some sort of expectation due to his sacrifice? Like, what were those expectations that you thought he had for you? Well, one thing, I mean, he explicitly told me that I, that I should be a rabbi. Like, I became a rabbi because he told me to. Um, there's really no way around that. That's 100% how that happened. How did that come about? Was that just like one day, you know, yeah. you, need, yeah, yeah. you need to be a rabbi? Yeah. He, he, we used to um, go sailing a lot. That was a lot of private time between us. Um, and we logged many, many hours in a sailboat and also at his club. And I remember as clear as yesterday, sitting at a, um, you know, sitting at a, a table for lunch there with them. And he said to me, uh, I think you should be a rabbi. And I said, you know, why? And he said, well, I think you're really good with people and I think you'll be happy. And he said, you'll never be a multimillionaire like me, but they'll take care of you and you'll be good. And, um, I said, all right. I mean, you know, I, there were definitely times where I kind of like, you know, pushed it away. Like, ah, it's, you know, it's just Poppy make, wanted me to do this. But ultimately I did it, you know. How old were you? At that time? Yeah. Probably 16 or 17. And you just seized on I mean, was it something that you even contemplated before? Um, well, both of my parents were teachers. And so I always kind of like thought that maybe I would be a, a teacher um, and then it was the, like the, the kind of internal narrative there was, you know, well, I'm, all my role models are either teachers or businessmen. And so I'll either be a teacher or a businessman, you know, but I, but I never had a hard personality. Like I was always kind of a soft kid. Um, I was more interested in snuggling up next to people than I was like, you know, wrestling with people, although I did that too, but it was, I was more of a soft kid. And so, you know, I, no one projected me as having that cutthroat kind of business personality that they would need to have. Um, and so it was more in the teacher side of things, I think that I fell and, you know, because Poppy was in that world and um, held rabbis in such esteem and saw how they really stood in front of their community. Well, if I'm going to be a teacher, I should be that kind of teacher, you know? Um, and then I think also it, it gave him an immense source of pride, the idea that one of his kind of offspring would end up becoming a rabbi, you know? Did he have any sort of relationships with any of his other grandkids? I'm assuming he had other grandkids. Yeah, I mean, I have three little sisters, uh, two cousins, you know. He eventually knew uh, one of my daughters, um, and so he lived long enough to have close relationships. But I think everyone would say that to a certain extent it was kind of he and me, and then he had relationships with the other, with the other kids, but that he and I were, were the closest of all of it. And I'm not, it's like, that's not talking out of term. I, I mean, I'm not, that's not, that's not something I'm proud of exactly. Like I didn't create that. Um, and he certainly had good relationships with uh, my sisters, for example, and also, um, you know, my cousins. But I think uh, we spent so much time together, you know, I think he, I think, yeah, there's, I think, yeah, probably the deepest and longest with me. Do you think it was a mistake to just say, I'll be a rabbi. Yeah. You know, but, and no, you know, I mean, <laughs> well, what am I going to do? Like, I can't go back and change it. And it had a big impact. I mean, obviously it brought me to where I am now. Um, uh, you know, but I, I do think that that wasn't my natural path. You know, I think there were other things I could have done for sure that I would have been happier doing. Um, that would have been a much healthier sort of place for me to be. Um, hey, don't get me wrong. I'm not yeah. saying, was it a mistake? you know, for that, that you ever became a rabbi because you somehow poisoned your 
congregation. No, so, <laughs> no, I killed children. Remember, yeah, the... <laughs> no. <laughs> more like when when you heard that idea, was that something you were like, you know what, that's exciting? You know, along no. the lines of, it was more like, oh, well, okay, that seems. I I idealized it. You know, I told myself was that it would be a really simple life. Um, because I imagined that being a rabbi was like being a summer camp counselor year round, um, where you're just kind of helping people and playing guitar and stuff like that. Um, but it's not that at all. It's, it's way different from that. Um, and so I managed to like sort of build a story around it that was like, yeah, it's gonna be great. It's just gonna be great, you know, but that's like what you're telling yourself is you I knew I was, you know, click, click, clicking up the roller coaster, <laughs> you know, it's gonna be great. This is gonna be, this is gonna be a joy. And then, uh, you know, you graduate rabbinical school and it's like, ah, like straight down. <laughs> so I totally knew that that's what was happening. But I was telling myself, like, it's going to be great. No, it's, it's going to be real simple. It's just me people and prayers and songs. And I'll find a good wife and, uh, you know, there'll be some kids running around. And I'll spend my time in this big rustic woody room that we call a sanctuary. And it's going to be great. You know, and uh, no, that's not, that's not at all what it is. Um, when you... When you thought about that, let's get to the to the to the brain part of it. So yeah. you, you you crafted a narrative uh-huh. to sort of it sounds like to blanket an anxiety that existed as part of this yeah. de- decades long yeah. endeavor. Yeah, and when you say narrative, in my case, you I mean really really I'm talking monologue. I'm talking years long monologue. Um, I remember, you know, not that long ago discovering that really most people don't have an inner running monologue happening all the time. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know that. I did not know that. Did you know that by the way? <laughs> Cause I did not know. Oh, that. <laughs> here's my inner monologue. Is that a muffin? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was just saying someone the other day, like, I didn't like, you know, I don't even know, you know, if I didn't have an inner running monologue, I'd, I'd be walking into walls all day because at least 10 to 15 times a day, I'm like, hey, a wall. And then I know to avoid that wall. <laughs> right. That's a wall. Oh, That's look a at wall doorknob. Right there. Exactly. What do I do with doorknobs? Oh, I'm supposed oh, this... to grip it and turn it. They're all turning kinds. Oh, this is the kind that has a clasp. Isn't that nice? This is the circle <laughs> kind. This is great. <laughs> and in the meantime, you know, I'm taking this next step for my grandfather. You know, ooh, look at this guy. You know, I mean, that's really, really, that's really right, going right. on <laughs> Is that a muffin? Should I have two? Exactly. Gosh, would this satisfy grandpa? Exactly. I don't know. I'm going to have two. That thought makes me want to have three. Okay. I remember, I remember but, but my grandfather was also like a very typical uh, New York Jewish kind of person, you know, where um, like just everything is like his business, you know? So like, I, this is a direct quote from him once. Josh, I was reading an article about irritable bowel syndrome and I thought of you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even want to know. Thanks, Poppy. You know, I'm really glad that I'm reminding, you know, that, that, you know, never mind. <laughs> it's really, it's not a... Right, I'm just, it's just the, the prospect of people having just constant, <laughs> constant catastrophic diarrhea. Made you think you of me. Grandson. <laughs> Thanks. So as you, as you took it on, you, so no, I, I don't know. I don't know what other people think. I just don't. And I haven't studied it. I don't know what an inner monologue is. I know I get through my day and sometimes I find myself, I don't know, 
you know, perfectly entertained by my own thoughts. Yeah, 100%. I don't know if that's a monologue or some something that perhaps is topic for later. Um, <laughs> but are you talking about it, online porn? Because it sounds like you're talking about online porn. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm just talking about laughing out loud at things that I don't even know where it came from. But in any anyway, event. Go on. So the inner monologue, the the so it was a monologue to, uh, or a narrative, a monologue to essentially constantly uh, project a story that you thought would be appropriate and acceptable, yeah. and that would, as I said earlier, either uh, blanket or cover or uh, push aside the negative uh, mental and emotional aspects of that choice yeah well yeah both the, the monologue is always there and i think it i think it would be there no matter what whether it's healthy unhealthy it's just happening and a lot of times it is healthy you know because a lot of times i can talk myself into doing shit that i should be doing um and a lot of times it's really unhealthy because i start talking to myself about shit that i probably shouldn't be talking to myself about um and uh that's that's where the challenge is and you know so that's sort of what happened there it's not that it's not that the problem was the monologue it's the problem was what the monologue was talking about and uh at some points and what the monologue was talking about at some points was that this this there's a layer of narrative to my life that's my responsibility and it never was um and uh because what ultimately happened was i became a rabbi i became actually a pretty good rabbi um and uh i found my way to a career path that was pretty strong um i stepped away from it for you know marriage reasons that we'll get into at some point down the road i'm sure um, been the step back into it and was pretty good. Even started my own synagogue. I was growing it really well. Um, but my grandfather died. And so he could never witness me, you know, achieving this goal of perfect marital bliss and also perfect career path. Um, and then my dad died. So he could never live to witness me achieve this goal of perfect marital bliss and perfect um, career path put together in one. And, uh, and then it was like, well, what the fuck was I doing this for the whole time? You know? And then the narrative went there. And what was already kind of a pretty, you know, medium amount of depression, I think, based off of that, once both of them were dead and then there was no opportunity to share with them, it was like, well, what, what did I sacrifice all this stuff for? You know, and then, it, and then everything unraveled after that. Um, and uh, that's really was the starting point for me was, was in that narrative. So now I find, you know, after five years of hard work, and like really diving into things that my narrative is still there, but I'm much better at controlling it. You know, so like, for example, catastrophic thinking, do you have that? Catastrophic thinking, describe yeah. that to me. It sounds like something that I would explore. Yeah, no, uh, so like, it's anything for me. Um, oh, here's a perfect example. Um, I mean, are you like really surprised that we're all in quarantine because of the fucking coronavirus out there right now, just tearing the world apart. Are you really surprised? Tell me you haven't fucking thought of this before a thousand times and kept yourself up at night because like, yeah, obviously this is going to happen at some point. That's, that's an interesting uh, framing of your question. Um, I don't think I've ever, I don't think I tend to go down that rabbit hole. Yeah. To, to that extent yeah um i i would say i'm not surprised yeah that we have come to this i am rarely surprised at any negative outcome so it's not so much catastrophic thinking as it is 
extremely <laughs> low expectations <laughs> of humanity. And so um, in terms of, you know, having apocalyptic thoughts, to me, I mean, those are some things that are just out of out, out of, of your control. control. Yeah. And, 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 you know, you see it, you know, as a quick aside, you know, we're in the midst of this in the first week of pretty much nationwide and worldwide um, isolation mm-hmm. from others. Mm-hmm. And, but the thing that everyone has talked about are these, like, um, this hoarding of toilet paper. <laughs> For some reason, that's a, that's a fixation on both sides, people that are hoarding it and people that are critiquing the hoard of it. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a control aspect to that. Like, well, I can't fix this, but damn it, I'm going to have enough toilet paper. <laughs> yeah. And, and then on the other side, it's the other people going, well, I can't control it either, but I can certainly criticize you for buying <laughs> 85 packets of toilet paper. It doesn't 100%. make any sense. Yeah. 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 So, oh, in, in any event. Yeah, no. Okay. So that's, that's what catastrophic thinking is. It's like that, that you sit, you kind of like ruminate in your own thoughts and you play out for whatever version, just the worst extreme of anything that could possibly happen. So I'll go global in that way. Like imagine really, really like a zombie, you know, apocalypse. Imagine really, really um, an asteroid hitting the earth, you know, and I'll, I'll do that kind of stuff. Um, and then, and I got a plan for all of it, by the way, <laughs> so we can get into that if you want. Um, and then I'll go um, way more personal, which is way more disturbing. And that's the, you know, like imagining something absolutely awful happening to my children. You know what I mean? Um, and me not being able to do anything about it. And like really going into it and then catching myself and being like, what in the fuck am I, like, why am I sitting here thinking about this horrible thing? Um, why am I doing this to my, like, what is the purpose of doing this to myself? And so, yeah, that's that's an example of uh, catastrophic thinking. And so- then answer that question. Yeah. Why do you why do you have that catastrophic thinking? Why is that so this, part of your monologue? This is actually a really recent discovery that um, has been pretty world changing. Although a fucking bitch to like actually try to figure out how to fix um, because you know dealing with the mental illness is like the quintessential example of trying to fix the machine as the machine inside the machine. You know, and it's like really really hard to do that. Um, but, uh, for me, it's what it is, is I built an eight lane highway easy pass around negative emotions. So I barely feel anger at all and haven't for years. Um, and, but when I do, it's like there for a nanosecond and then I go straight into an anxious thought process. And then I'll so sort of like put that emotion in a box and then I'll hammer that fucking shit home with depression. So, you know, you sit there and I'll think to myself, God, I'm so upset that I'm divorced now and I don't get to be with my children all the time. And how angry am I about like that reality of my life, right? So that thought will happen for so quick a time, I won't even notice it because I go straight from there into, oh my gosh, what if my daughters are kidnapped? Um, and then from there I'll go, what, what in the fuck is wrong with you, dude, that you're thinking about that shit. And then it's hammered home. And then I don't feel the emotion itself, which is so uncomfortable, but instead I cover it up with those other things. Um, and that's exactly what's happening. So now what I work on is when I have the thought of like, huh, my daughter's being kidnapped. It's like, okay, okay. Time out for a second. 
what were you thinking right before that? Like, what was the thought that you had right fucking before that? Um, and then um, based off of that, I can try to maybe get into what that thought was and then avoid the eight lane highway easy pass that I set up. But it, it is a very thick and strong neural pathway for me. So you have an initial thought that you just don't want it. So it's an initial thought that obviously has some lack of control, right? Yeah. yeah. And then and, the, and then you're like, okay, I'm going to parlay this into a jackpot yeah. of lack of control. This yeah. is going to be the biggest possible scenario. A hundred percent. Yeah. Which I, I suppose, what do you do then? to confront that initial thought? Do you just say, well, that's just not plausible or, you know, or that just, I mean, I'm, I'm sad about that. I, or I admit that, that, I mean, I'll say this and I've said this jokingly to people Mm -hmm. uh, for years is that the, you know, my family's greatest, when I say my family, I mean the Norvell side, I I do not disparage the, uh, you know, my wife's side um, or the, the positive 50% of genes that my kids get is that the, the Norvell's strongest quality that we, we have um, mentally is the, the strength of denial. The denial <laughs> that really denial of anything. I mean, it just denial that anything is ever wrong. Yeah. That it's, you know, anybody is just, mm, nope, not going to, not going to face it. And it is, yeah. I think, two sides of the same coin um, where it's unwillingness to face that negative emotion, that negative aspect. I'll face, but any- yeah, I'll face a negative emotion, but I won't face the fact that it probably can't be fixed in a, in a way that I want it to be. That's what I can't face. Where did that come from? What do you, what do you, I mean, what's the, what's the, the genesis of that? I don't know. I really don't know. You know, I mean, you know, where does the crack in the knee start? You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's really hard to tell. Um, and it's such a mishmash of different things. I mean, I've been talking about this in terms of narrative the whole time, but it's really a story of serotonin too, right? Like it's really also a story of just like how my fucking brain is put together. Yeah. So I was, I was on something called, um, what was a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor called, uh, I think it was called Brintelix or Trintelix. I forget one of the, it was, it was called both of those things. One of them, it was called first, the second one, the other one, it was called second. Cause it was, I think it was called like Brintelix first, but then that was too close to the name of another drug. So then they changed it to Trintelix, but it's a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. And I was on it for like two and a half years. Um, and it, you know what, it didn't solve any problems, but what it, what it did do was it slowed the descent. Um, and it was crazy because the first, you know, you have to kind of like work your way up to it and then work your way out of it. Um, and so I ended up taking 10, um, I guess, milligrams a day. But I started with five. You start with five every day for like a week, week and a half. And then you go up to 10 and then you just stay on 10 for as long as it needs to be or make adjustments based off of how it helps you. And then you can't just go off of it. You wean your way off of it. So you go from 10 down to five. You do five every other day and then five every like three days. And then you, you know, are just off of it. And when I went on it, all the colors got brighter, like immediately. It was like, suddenly I could see blue again and green. And that was like crazy to me of like, oh my Lord, oh my Lord. Literally? Like literally? Literally brighter. Literally bright. It wasn't like I was colorblind. I wouldn't say that. Um, But that everything had gotten duller, literally. 
And as soon as I started taking it, everything got brighter, literally got brighter. And apparently that's the thing that happens is that it actually does affect your vision in that way. And depression affects your vision in that way. But then putting more serotonin in your brain affects your vision in that way, which is nuts. Um, my dog is starting to cry in the background. We should keep that in there too, because uh, I torture her. That's what's going on there. Um, so, and then, uh, and then when I went off of it, you know, I, I had like suicidal thoughts going off of it and I had been like fine on the suicidal thought department for a while. And my therapist said to me, she was like, well, think about it like this. You're on crutches because you sprained your ankle or broke your ankle. And then at some point you don't need your crutches anymore and you go off of it, but it still hurts. Right. You know, that's exactly what it is. And, uh, I mean, to this day, the whole thought of that blows my mind because when you open up the, you know, basically like the Torah of like <laughs> instructions and like, I mean, you hope when you start taking these meds, it's not like a normal medicine where they have just like a little pamphlet around it. This is what this drug does. It's like, it's like a 30 chapter book basically that you unfold. And the first thing it says is we don't know why this drug does what it does. It's literally the first thing that it says. And uh, <laughs> that's amazing. And then you're just like, okay, you know, <laughs> like, I guess this is what's happening. And then you go into it and yeah, it's a, it's an utter mind fuck, but it didn't. So I had to solve my problems. I definitely had to solve them. Um, and I'm still working. I mean, I haven't solved my problems. I'm still working on it, but, uh, but yeah, I had to, I had to do it, but it was like, here, this buys you more time. And it did. It definitely did. There's no question about that. Do you, have you talked to other people who have had similar experiences with, uh, with, uh, essentially it's medical prescriptions that have, as you say, uh, slowed the descent. Do you talk to people about that? Not enough. Anybody else? Like no, that? not enough. That's one of the reasons why, you know, I want to do this because I don't get to have enough of these conversations with people about like the impact that this stuff has on you. Um, I think I'd really love to talk to people who have gone through similar experiences. You know, I don't know that there's anybody who started taking meds instead of solve their problem unless we're, unless we're getting on more of the psychosis side. You know, on the psychosis side, you take meds and you still have to do a lot of work, but those meds are, they help you, I think, in a different way. Um, but uh, on the neurosis side, which is where depression and anxiety is, you take meds. And I think for most of us, it probably just slows the descent. And it just buys you more time, I would think, but I'm not sure. Do you think it would be possible to um, not have uh, come through some of the struggles without um, being prescribed yeah. the antidepressants that you did? Yeah, I don't think I had enough time. I don't think I had enough time. to. I think the amount of time that I needed to work through the issues that I was working through to get my feet underneath me. I don't think I had enough time to work through that stuff, you know? I mean, I, that's what it is. I mean, so I'll explain it to you like this. Um, uh, the type of therapy that I, that I do is called dialectical behavioral therapy. And one of the things we're trained to do is keep track of how intense some of the self-destructive thoughts are. Um, so for example, uh, scraping yourself or cutting yourself like that type of self-harm or straight up suicidal thoughts. So we can keep it on the more suicidal side now, just to, I think it makes, I think it's, it's darker, obviously. And I don't know, maybe funnier, I guess. Though. <laughs> we'll see. But um, so basically at, you want to be at, a, it's a scale of zero to five in terms of keeping track of where your suicidal thoughts are. And you want to be at a zero as much as possible. And what a zero is, is obvious. You just don't think about suicide, right? You're just kind of walking about your day and 
dealing with their life. And at no point does, do you think like, um, you know, I'm going to off myself in any way. So that's where you want to be is a zero. A one is a momentary thought. Like you ever hear that Bill, Bill Burr joke where it's just like, you know, I don't, I'm not like suicidal, but sometimes I think about like having to like bake a pie and that makes me want to kill myself. You know what I mean? <laughs> You know that joke? Yeah. <laughs> you ever hear him do that joke? So that's a one. You know, it's like, oh, fuck, like I got to go do this thing. But there's this truck driving by and I could just easily also toss myself under the tires. And um, and then I wouldn't have to do the thing. And it, it happens for like a moment and then it's gone. And so that's a one. A one, it's barely distracting. It maybe lasts a minute. It's gone and you don't have them that much, right? A two is uh, just like a one except longer. Um, and so you kind of like, instead of, you know, maybe a minute long thought, maybe it's like a 10 minute thought, like, you know, I could, if I wanted to get this car going fast enough and then just kind of go off the side of the road and smash into that wall with the head, like I could probably do that. And if I took my seatbelt off, I bet that that would do the job, you know, but do I really want to do that to the people around him? Like they didn't sign up for that. You know what I mean? <laughs> so like, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to. I'm not going to go driving and creating into a wall because like, it's not just going to kill me. It's going to, well, well, I could like come back at four in the morning. Right. Like there wouldn't be anybody here, but then the police have to come. You know what I mean? And so that's like a two, that's like a solid two. Cause now you're distracted by it. Um, now it's taking away from your day and you're actually like contemplating suicide in a real way. Um, when you're at a three, that's when you've got a plan. Three is like, I know I'm, yeah, this is how it's going to be done. Um, for sure, that's the way. Um, it's nice and easy. I've done the research. It's there. But you haven't started moving towards it. That's a four. A four is you've got your plan and you're like driving to the gun shop to buy, you know, shells for your shotguns, basically. And then a five is you're putting the gun to your mouth. That's what a five is. Um, and I have hit four. <sighs> probably three or four times. Um, three, quite a bit. Two is, uh, two is definitely, I mean, whatever you hit, you've hit the one below that a lot more. And then one is just a way of life. Um, and where I'm at now, um, I'm, you know what, like solid zero for maybe two weeks, solid zero for two weeks. That was vulnerable. That was pretty. That's, that was vulnerable. <laughs> I feel vulnerable. Yeah, that's I feel really vulnerable good. Right <laughs> oh god, that's pretty awesome. I mean, to be at a zero um, for any amount of time yeah. with that type of admitted uh, history yeah. is fantastic. Like, I mean, essentially, it says, "Look, it, you can work through it." And it's not like suddenly you're at zero and the credits roll. And everybody no, no, no. leaves the theater. Yeah, that's the like, thing about it. You got to zero, didn't it? Yay. You can look ahead. Like, I mean, I, I can look ahead and I know that if I live long enough, there are moments in my life that I'm going to be dealing with this shit again in a major way. You know, yeah. I mean, I know what happened when my dad died, you know, so project ahead. I mean, hopefully I would have more tools to think things through and more ability to face grief, you know. Um, but that's like, you know, this is this is my thing. You know, I got a bum knee, but it's fucking in my head. Um, and a lot of people do, and they don't have the ability or the skills or the therapist that I have, or, you know, the financial ability to get, um, you know, medicated in the way that I can, you know, and they're just fucking dealing with it alone. 
I mean, think about like the coronavirus and what we talk, we talk about everything with the current, like everything, you know, and I'm, you know, I listen to the daily podcast, which I love. And they did this episode about like how people are, you know, dealing with, um, you know, being in exile and all that stuff, right? Like all the self-isolation, which you point out is funny that like, it's just isolation. You don't have to say self, you know, <laughs> it's like implied, yeah. you know, <laughs> right. Right. it's 100% right. implied. <laughs> right. I mean, the other, the other form of isolation is actual imprisonment. Yeah. Non- Self-isolation is being put in place. Uh, 100%. So, 100%. So. I think maybe now, as we talk, we're kind of in that gray area. Yeah. Because they've told us not to leave. Mm -hmm. But, you know, except for essential services. No, but you can, though. They, they also expounded on that. So you could, like, leave your house and go for a walk around the block. You know. Right. You could go. The parks are still open. You can go to a park. Um, you just can't be near people. But Yeah, that's. That's fine. That's how I go to a park anyway. Yeah. Yeah. What's the point of going to a park? Not to be near people. What the fuck? Right. Can I, can I, I mean, what, what's, what's somebody going to do like in a normal time? If you're at the park, you're like, can I sit on the swing next to you? Yeah. Like, what the fuck yeah. is wrong with you? Yeah. Yeah. Get out of here. Well, all the playgrounds um, are closed, but all the, well, anyway, so, uh, what were you going to say? No, no, I, I wasn't. Well, you, you, You've got me thinking like, okay, you have this sort of like you talked about your grandfather and that relationship that put you into it. It sounds like you just did all of these things to please uh, in part him. And then when that went away, you're suddenly the light was brightly shown on you like, ah, yeah, maybe that wasn't really what I wanted yeah. to do. But you haven't talked much about like what your dad's position on it was. It was the same because thing. You said, yeah, it was the same I mean, thing. Did he, it was what about him what about him with his his dad did his dad go you know you'd be a great teacher no so my dad grew up dirt poor in the ozark mountains in missouri and uh for my for people like my dad and actually it is a very similar story it's actually exactly the same story when you think about it um but for my dad becoming a teacher was economic advancement um that was his that was his shot at it um, and so basically any kid growing up in his tiny ass town in the Ozark mountains, um, that was going to try to like make it big, um, and get out of the, get out of the tiny town and into something into, you know, the next level up, they went into education. That's just what they did. Um, he too wasn't designed for it because, you know, if you look up introvert, it's a picture of my dad's face right there. So, um, he worked as a teacher for a bunch of years, but, but could never really do it because he couldn't, he couldn't talk to people in that way. Um, the man literally threw up every single morning for like a year and a half or longer, um, before going to school to teach because he was so terrified of it. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. What did he teach? First high school history. Um, and then, uh, and then he left that and then he actually did go into business with my grandfather for a bit. And then he went back into education, but as an administrator. Um, so he was, uh, like an assistant principal, um, at a middle school. Um, in White Plains, New York, and uh, and then eventually um, in Warwick, New York, up there, and um, and did that for a couple of years until he just couldn't take it anymore. It was he wasn't cut out for it. And the same thing happened to me as a rabbi, where you know I did that for a bunch of years, and then I really just couldn't take it anymore. I wasn't cut out for it, um, and for like I think a different reason. You know, for him, he had to be a public speaker, and he was so terrified of that. Um, that it really frightened him. And the other piece was he was very, he was a very sensitive man. Um, and in that way, he's very similar to me. Like he couldn't handle 
the pain of other people in the way that you kind of have to be able to if you're going to be a school administrator, because all you're really doing is you're working with those families who are who are really having a hard time of it. Um, and a lot of times the reason why they're having a hard time of it is because of their personalities and how, you know, self-destructive and rough they are. And he took that, he took that shit home. And, uh, um, so ultimately he had to leave the profession because of that. Whereas for me, it was, you know, I can do the public speaking. That was easy for me. Um, I could do the helping people. That was easy for me. For me, it was the, um, adoration that came, that came with being a rabbi that really frustrated me and I couldn't handle it. Um, because, you know, people project their, um, their spiritual leaders in a way that's really unfair to them for the most part, because they need them to be, you know, human representations of God on earth and just no one can do that. And, uh, so for me, you know, I was in a pretty unhappy marriage and, um, um, was, uh, you know, not doing well personally because I was really questioning my choices. And in the meantime, you know, like I had a congregant once say to me, you know, Josh, uh, when, um, when we're having a, when we're having like a real bad day, like at work or at school, we kind of like alter our, you know, our commute home. And what we do is we just drive by your house and we kind of slow the car down a little bit, you know, and then kind of like feel your presence inside the house and it makes us feel a little better. And then we just drive off and go home. And I'm like, well, geez, thanks for telling me that. And in my head, I'm like, I'm going to go home and stab myself. Like, I'm literally <laughs> going to go home and I'm going to put my head through a fucking window and I'm going to end it right now. What the fuck is wrong with you people? <laughs> Why? The, the, the other reaction to that, though, yeah. you know this. Yeah. The other reaction to that is, that's awesome. No, it is not awesome. It is awful because, no, because, because when they're driving past my house, you know, like feeling my presence, I'm inside fucking smoking a bong playing GTA five, <laughs> jerking off in the bathroom, um, you know, trying to fucking figure out how to hold it together. And they're like trying to hold on to some idea that like, I'm in there, like, you know, watering my plants and shit and like finishing whatever, you know, book I start. And my life isn't like that at all. And they think I made a magic and I'm just not. And there, were, it was a complete opposite, um, you know, like take on, like, what the hell was going on with me? And there was no room for me to, like, be present at all as a real fucking human being in that sense. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, oh, my God. We're, two, we're people. We're in this together. Like, <laughs> like, why are you projecting me to be some kind of you know, perfect God walking on earth? That's awful. Don't do that to a person. Get, there are other personalities. There are other personalities that would take that and be like, and yes, notwithstanding yes, <laughs> that, yeah, exactly. Notwithstanding that, that uh, starkly human description that you made, say, <laughs> yeah, good. You should, you should, because I, I have chosen to work in this, and I've chosen to be in that position, and whatever it is that you see me as being, if that helps you get through your day, yeah. then great, good fantastic, for and I'll. Yeah. yeah, good good for you. Yeah, I think I think that I think that there are some rabbis who definitely can do that. There's some rabbis who actually start to believe it, which is true for I think all religious leaders and probably all leaders period. Um and then I think there are some people who are able to maintain that balance of being able to say um like you know what, like I understand what's going on here. They need me to represent this in a way. I'm happily married. I have a life outside of this. 
it doesn't bother me if they project me in that way. And good for them. They're in the right profession. They should be doing it, except I kind of think it's also bad for the world. But that's a different conversation. Um, but in terms of whether or not it's like bad for a person in and unto themselves, yeah, I think it's possible to find that balance. Um, I just think that usually those people are smart enough to do a different career. <laughs> Or to make a lot more money and be even happier and healthier. <laughs> so, but your dad, I mean, was your dad happy? I mean, your dad went into business with your grandfather. Hmm? I mean, was that an unhappy thing for him? Yes. <laughs> yes. Very much so. He wasn't, he wasn't made for that either. Um, I think if dad could have been anything, he'd have been a really good, um, uh, what do you call, ah, the fuck. Um, where you uh, design a person's lawn property and you build it out yourself. What do you call a that? A landscaper? Yeah, he'd be, he'd been a great landscaper. That was his, he was happiest when he was gardening. Totally solitary, totally quiet, uh, brilliant. If he had clientele that didn't mind that he would just work slowly and, and do something amazing, um, then, uh, then he'd, have been, he'd have been really happy doing that. Really, really happy doing that. And he came, he considered doing that for a bit. Um, but for some reason, he never did. But uh, I think he'd have been really happy in that career for sure. And then after that, he went into administration. Yeah. And you said like that, that wasn't a fit either. No. Did he ever find any sort of fit? Not really. He did a little work with my uncle for a bit. Um, still a business kind of thing. But that was like really family and, and uh, you know, they weren't able to do what they wanted to do there. Um, not really. No, he didn't work the last, uh, bunch of years of his life. So one of those things, but what, what he did do very successfully was he took care of the home, you know, he kept the house clean. Um, he, uh, you know, he was really close with, uh, my middle sister. He was really, really close with her there. They were just very similar people in a way. And, uh, and there was a time period where, he was, she needed him and he was perfect for her. So that's like, that's kind of like what, what he was all about in that way. Um, so, yeah. Did he ever discuss with you what you've discussed here on this podcast, the emotional and mental side of his, of his life and of his, you know, clear discomfort, a man who throws up before class every day. No. As if, as if every day were, you know, the Super Bowl or something, or, or if every day were just hell. No, uh, kind, not really. Maybe a couple moments here and there. Some of the more intense moments where he would, he would reveal something, you know, where we'd have like an argument about something, and then he would reveal, you know, you know, my dad was awful, and then he would like kind of go into some of that story. Um, but I knew about all of it because I was in, intensely curious about all of it. And I watched him very carefully, but we didn't have a lot of, um, we just didn't have a lot of the conversations where we could reveal and open a lot of that stuff. I mean, I'll tell you a story. So after he died, um, in my head, he talked to me twice right after he died. Um, and I'm not like a Mr. Ghost kind of deal. <laughs> like, trust, like, that's not, it's not my gig, but something happened in my brain. First, uh, um, so he died. We were living out here already. And we flew home the next day and uh, um, it's like a Tuesday morning and I'm waking up in New York after flying in the night before. And um, I'm alone in the room that we're sleeping in 
and I'm just kind of waking up and suddenly I kind of feel dad's presence and he goes, you got to mow the lawn. And I was like, fucking dad, I'm not mowing the lawn. Dad. (laughs) Fucking died two days ago, dude. Like, there's no way, like, I get it. People are going to be coming over and you want the lawn mowed, but I'm not fucking mowing the lawn. And then he just kind of like left. And then like about 20 minutes later, my neighbor's over mowing the lawn. I figured he went over and asked him to do it. <laughs> I think that's what happened there. And then, that's and then later that night, um, everyone had gone to sleep. And now I'm awake in the, um, like in the den in my parents' house. And then I feel him again. And he's just in the room with me. And he goes, uh, hey, you know that I know. He's like, you know that I, and I, I know he's trying to say I love you there. He never, ever said it. So he was like, you know that I, and I was like, I know dad, I'm, you know, I'm smarter than that. I know that you love me. And he was like, and you know that I know that you, and I was like, yeah, dad, I I know that, you know, and then he left and then he was gone. And it's so interesting to me that like, on one hand, you know, my brain just like fucking created that. But even in that space, he didn't have the ability to say, I love you. Does that make sense? Like, goodness gracious, like you've crossed over the threshold. You know, like you couldn't figure it out, like in that in that process, like it didn't occur to like you didn't like your problems weren't dealt with when you became a ghost. Like, what the fuck? What in the fuck is going on? But it also, you know, to the extent to the extent we could say that that was, um, you know, his spirit coming back to talk to you, or just something in my brain. Yeah, yeah. If but on the other side, if it's just something in your brain. That's a complete understanding yeah. of your father. Yeah, I could not project him being any different than having that really emotional interaction be that strangely distant, um, but still incredibly close because it's happening in comparison to any other time where it's, you know, hey, how you doing? You know, not too bad. How are you? Not too bad, daddy-o, you know, da 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 All right, we'll talk to you again soon. All right, you know. <laughs> And then like once a year, you know, check in, Hey, how's work? Talk about work, chop it up a little bit and then, uh, and then end it. But in the meantime, every time we're together, you know, I'm watching all of his micro reactions and, you know, watching every movement and just really aware of him and all this stuff. And so it's like that kind of deep study, you know? Do you ever find yourself, um, manifesting, physical behaviors that both your grandfather or your your dad had um like like expressions uh manner of walking manner of speaking the way you address your kids or other people um and yes but in the opposite way um so i like for example i tell my girls i love them probably way too much that that's what they're going to be talking about with their therapist. It's like, God damn, dad just like, was it too much with the, I love you. <laughs> like, that was like, so that's like one thing that I think about. Um, but uh, yeah, probably, probably some of the more negative stuff. I'm sure, you know, um, my grandfather taught me lessons from like 1950 that even when I was hearing them, it was like, yeah, I don't think that's applicable anymore. <laughs> like like uh i told you we used to sail a lot and so we would sail he would say to me you gotta handle a boat like a woman to be firm but gentle (laughs) 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 
Uh, oh poppy we're gonna go ahead and let that attitude die with you sir <laughs> like that's gonna stick with you kid not coming with me on that one i'm way too terrified of women to approach them with that mindset that's that's very funny but it, it does represent a sort of like uh propensity to it, that, that's a really stark rule right yeah like that's something like you know this i'm going to boil it down into something simple yeah and you know people who hear that you know if you think about it to any extent you're like what the fuck <laughs> like are you serious yeah like i'm not sure what that means that's like, way like, that's open for all sorts of shit so many, I don't moments, know. so many moments like talking i mean that's the generation gap like when there's a generation between you and the person you're talking to you you inevitably you're going to find moments like that of like did you really just did you really just say colored people did, is that the word is that what just came out of your mouth just now colored people can we just rewind that for a second and just let you know that that's not acceptable anymore <laughs> like oh my it, lord <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. And, and uh, you know, that's a, that's a discussion for my, for my other podcast, uh, the, the pejoration of words, like how words become pejorative. Yeah. I actually don't have a podcast about that, but it's an interesting topic. Yeah. Um, because inevitably in my lifetime, I've seen the evolution of things that were seemingly okay to things being completely wrong. Yeah. And I'm not talking about like the obvious racial slurs. No. Like, those were always bad. No, the underlying um, fucking uh, mindset behind those obvious racial slurs, because that does not go away when the words go away. Um, yes. And that's like, yeah. Oh my Lord. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's very interesting. So where, you know, I, I think, I think we've, I think we've opened up a wonderful can. Me too. Of, of, uh, of brain me too for future podcasts this is really good where do you uh where do you see yourself going you know with these things in the future how how do you anticipate handling them you had said earlier you uh you know you're gonna find yourself confronting these situations over and over but you're currently in a really good spot what ultimately has put you in that good spot besides you know the besides therapy i mean are your circumstances better are you being more honest with yourself are there yeah like one or two things you can point at yeah i mean i i you know i i think uh that discovery that we talked about earlier of just like realizing oh goodness okay so this thought is coming from that and now i understand that there's this neural pathway that's highly overused in my brain that um is is causing damage um it's also incredibly helpful that's why it's there um, but it's causing damage in the process of being helpful because you don't build an eight lane easy pass lane. You have a two lane easy pass and then you have the rest of the highway where most of the other people drive, you know, <laughs> like that's, that's how that's supposed to go. Um, and, uh, so that type of thing is, you know, has been really helpful, obviously, but yeah, for me, it's, it's been doing just a shit ton of work, um, seeing a therapist for a long time and, and then, getting really lucky in a lot of ways too, you know, being lucky that, um, I have the family that I have that can support me. Um, being lucky that I found my way to a career path that makes a lot more sense for me. Um, you know, as an executive recruiter now, um, you know, doing that work, being lucky enough to find my way to an act to a company that's filled with a bunch of other weirdos, just like me, where I can, you know, really be myself in a space and, 
also uh, be able to work in a way that I like to work, you know? I mean, all those pieces kind of came together in, in a way for me that were um, obviously really helpful, but that doesn't mean that there isn't, you know, quite a significant challenge going ahead. Um, you know, I still feel, um, you know, under-equipped in a lot of the things that I want to be able to do. And when I think about, like, you know, looking for a love relationship that, you know, is healthy and good for me and lasts, you know, for the rest of my life, um, being exactly the kind of dad that I want to be as much of the time as possible, and then being happy and in my own skin in a way that I'd like to be as much as possible, you know, that's kind of where the struggle is now is uh, finding my way there. But you still got to work, you know. But this, I mean, yeah. this, this, yeah. this isn't like really, I mean... I think it's important to talk about this, like talk about these aspects of it, but I don't want to share this shit to say that like, this is what someone else should be doing. You know what I mean? Like they, like everyone needs to find their way, you know, to it. And a lot of people can figure it out without doing the stuff that I did. Um, and you know, so, but yeah, I'm looking forward to the next one, man. Me too. This was good. This is a good start. Yeah. And, uh, the uh i'm not going to be around on the next one i don't know this is too much i'm very tired <laughs> well who do i do the next one with then fuck you gonna find someone uh, to that's do up it. to you this is, this is your pod man all right all right <laughs> all right we'll find somebody we'll find somebody there's i, I know a, a lot i of have a couple people. of ideas i got one in particular i think would be really interesting um there's another rabbi friend who's still rabbying i need to ask her if she should be willing to do it um if you is have that a verb rabbying a rabbi yeah to rabbi we can make it a verb. I'm happy to make it a verb. Sure. That's fine. I, I'm not particular. <laughs> I'm gonna, I think of it as a participle. Uh, anyway. So, uh, yeah, I'm going I'm, to I'm ask her and see what she says. And then uh, um, it's not like I'm sitting here. I, I'm not sitting on top of a network of people who've had fucking mental problems. You know what I mean? That, that, that's like a part of the challenge here. Who do we find to get but, in here? But, 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 but. but. But you kind of are because you're in the world. And yeah, that's true. It, it's like I've told you the story of, you know, the the psychic who said, you know, they, they said, how how are you able to to connect with people as a psychic? He said, well, I have a little trick. And what I say is, you've been going through a hard time recently. <laughs> and it's a winner every single time because everyone has always been going through a really hard time recently, <laughs> particularly if they're going to see a psychic. So there is, there's a lot out there, Josh. We can, we can find. All it. right, we're 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 gonna wrap this thing up. Well, let's, we're gonna make it. Let's great. do this together. I hope, uh, I hope it does uh, for the listeners what we wanted to do. But you know, my mindset is, I'm excited to do it just because I think it's. I think it'll be good for me not to be too selfish about this or anything, but that's pretty much where it's at. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Josh. Um, until next time. All right. Well, we'll until next time, we'll, we'll catch you. And uh, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. And, Thank uh, you. Thanks for this opportunity. I'm yeah. really happy to be a part of Perry Veritas. And sunshine and brain. Sunshine man. and good brain. First episode. Thank you. <laughs>